Thank you very much to everybody for uh, coming back. And uh, now we have one of the top panels of the conference, and Knut is going to moderate it. I'd like to thank again uh, DNV for their partnership, but also I'd like to acknowledge the support of the uh, German Shipowners Association, Dr. Martin Kroger, thank you very much, as well as the uh, Hamburg uh, Shipbrokers Association. So thank you to everyone. And Knut, the, front, the, front, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Nicholas. Uh, good morning again, everyone. Uh, I guess uh, nature made a call for a lot of us, so that's why we had a few that went outside. Um, anyways, it's good to be here on the panel, and those of you who, who heard me this morning, I talked about Hamburg being known for the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, uh, but that's not exactly what we will discuss uh, this morning. Uh, this panel is trying to focus on German shipping, and not least about how to navigate through the industry transformations and look at prospects, opportunities and challenges. So um, I'm very delighted to have this uh, very capable panel to join me on stage. So if I can just very briefly introduce uh, everyone, I'm sure that you are well known already, but um, on my, my, next to myself is Mr. Jan Lars Kruse, who's the managing director of Hartmann Red Rhine. Um, welcome. Thank you. Next, next is uh, Mr. Christian Rickley, and you are the managing director of MPC Capital. Welcome. And uh, next is Dr. Martin Kroger. You are the CEO of the German uh, Ship Owners Association of the Verein Deutsche Rede. Welcome, and, um, and finally, last but not least, uh, welcome to uh, Dr. Arndt Vespermann, who's the CEO of CPO Holding Offen Group. So a great panel indeed, and um, without further ado, I think we'll just get started on some of the topics. So um, just to set the, the scene um, from your perspectives, what are the big challenges um, the industry is facing in Germany, but also elsewhere? And, um, and what are the big changes that you see on the horizon? Um, could we start with you on that one, Ant, and then we just go down the table, please. Yes, thank you, Knut. Uh, first of all, I'm pretty happy when you started referring to two bands that you don't ask me now to perform or sing on stage. Um, so uh, the challenges ahead of us, clearly within, uh, with an operational fleet of, uh, of about 50 vessels, it's, uh, it's the regulatory uh, <clears throat> kicking in as of 2023. So the questions for us in respect of existing fleet and uh, new orders, uh, how will ETS look like, how will CII in practice work? Um, there's a lot of uncertainty still. Uh, as we all know, and specifically on, on CI, we know the rules, but we don't know how this will work in the partnership between the owners and, uh, and the liner companies. In respect of ETS, uh, considering that it's only eight weeks ahead of uh, the year 2023, it's amazing to see that so far it's, it's not clear how exactly the rules will look like uh, and what does it mean for existing charter parties, for new charter parties, uh, how do we handle that? So, <clears throat> looking at the investment, the assets under management, 
it's amazing to 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 have this uncertainty still at this pretty late stage. Indeed. Uh, Martin, please. <clears throat> morning, everyone. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you discussed the whole morning. I. I guess the decarbonization. So, of course, decarbonization and everything that comes with it is the, I think, biggest challenge we have on the market at the moment. Uh, how to handle new legislation that is not only regulating um, the efficiency of the ship, but uh, also the efficiency of the operation. And uh, then, of course, course, carbon pricing. What is carbon pricing? What is the right model to introduce uh, a higher carbon price or a carbon price at all to shipping? We haven't been there yet with our industry, but we're definitely on the way. You mentioned the European emission trading system. That is, of course, uh, a regulation which has a, quite a deep impact on our industry. And uh, it won't stop there because we're going to face a situation in a few years' time where we have a similar system in place uh, on an international scale. And that will be, of course, very interesting to see if that is going to be an emission trading system, which is generally a little bit complicated, I would say, and uh, lessons learned from the European process of introducing this legislation shows it is a complex issue, uh, or will it be uh, a levy on the fuel, which might be in the handling uh, much easier. So we will look at that um, uh, and then see how it goes. But in the end, I mean, if, if we want to decarbonize, which we already announced we will in 2050, um, we will definitely need to look in the fuels. And, and there the big question is where, where the fuels are coming from. And, um, you know, if you look uh, in the room, I mean, how many fuel suppliers are here to discuss with us? I would say zero. Uh, which is, of course, a challenge in itself because shipping is not pr producing any fuels as the fuel suppliers. So uh, that would be the next challenge to actually get the fuel suppliers on the panel here and discuss with us. Certainly, maybe a good point and a good hint to Nicholas for the next event. <laughs> <laughs> so someone told me that uh, Christmas is only six weeks away and uh, some of the regulations are entering into force in January, as we talked about. Christian, what's your view on, on the topic? I think be, besides the, the regulatory issues we obviously face, it's really uh, sitting here in Germany today, um, we're obviously faced with an energy crisis, right? Um, Basically, the, the, the German business model, heavily relying on cheap uh, energy from Russia, is, is broken. And uh, you would have hoped for an acceleration in, in, in some of the uh, replacement and uh, some of the new sustainable energy investments, in a way. But uh, the reality is the opposite. The reality is that uh, we, we see a lot more priority, um, immediate measures being taken at the moment to fight high energy prices, to fight inflation. We need to regain energy independence to the extent possible. And for shipping, that as a consequence basically means that we actually face the risk of temporarily moving a bit out of focus, a little out of focus with our efforts on a decarbonization. It may actually delay the decarbonization um, to a certain degree. And that's definitely making a few investments, which we are seeing or looking at at the moment, a bit more uncertain. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Thanks. Um, I agree to all of what my fellow panelists say. Um, I think there's not much more to add on the regulatory side. Um, uh, where also, Christian, what you said, uh, speed for, for, for new transition, probably. I mean, we just heard earlier from, um, <clears throat> from other panelists that uh, this time, at least, the German politic was quite quick on, on FSRUs and LNG importation, etc. So, uh, at least for once, they have been quick and uh, very fast deciding. So, let's hope that this 
shifts a bit into also other decisions to be taken. But there's one aspect which I would like to add um, as a challenge in shipping, also not only in Germany, but internationally. Uh, it's more from a perspective of a ship manager and ship owner probably, um, but this is staff on shore as well as at sea. So this is going to be one of the biggest challenges I see going forward with all the transition happening on fuels, on um, technologies, on digitalization, etc. We need to get the staff, we need to be attractive as an industry, we need to attract young people into the industry, um, we need to show people that this is a, a sexy industry to work in. So this is not only bringing ships from A to B or bringing products from A to B, so you have a much wider range also today and also going forward. What you can educate yourself in, so let it be digital age, let it be new fuels, new technologies, developments, etc. So. And, how do we attract people to get into shipping? Uh, we are fighting with, not only in the shipping industry, for the same um, skills uh, and fight for talent, but also with other industries. So this is going to be one of the challenges which I clearly see onshore as well as sea, plus all the other challenges which we unfortunately also have to face, but this is what we're here for. This giving up is not an option. <laughs> That's so true. Thank you very much for your insights. Um, we heard also earlier today about the fuels and uh, it seems like we are heading into what can be called a multi-fuel future, right? So um, uh, there has also been a lot of talk around the so-called green corridors, what was agreed at, at COP26 between a number of different nations. Um, and I'm curious to know if there are any sort of initiative in Germany around establishing green corridors or if there is any sort of likelihood that we will see that and if so, uh, what could be the likely sector and uh, how to get it uh, kicked off? Uh, and maybe also if you have any sort of opinion on which fuels might be the right fuels to target for such a green corridor. So. Um, I, I basically leave it a lot open to whoever is uh, interested to respond, but maybe Christian, if I could start at least with you, please. Sure, um, we, we, we do definitely like green corridors, um, and, and we like the concept of green corridors, and I think to your question, um, the best sectors to start are usually the ones who are very close to the end consumers, because that usually increases the willingness uh, of them to pay for it, and that's container shipping, that's surely car carriers, that's uh, cruise ships. But I think we not only like it, but we're actually building green corridors. Um, I think we have uh, ordered dual fuel <coughs> methanol container feeder ships. And these ships uh, will be trading up and down the Norwegian West Coast. It's going to be a green corridor. They will be turned around here in Rotterdam and Hamburg. And I think uh, when we ordered the ships and, and the elements of a green corridor, which are really important, are that you usually have a lot of support from onshore. So basically you have states uh, subsidies, which we got from, from the Norwegian state, uh, from the Innova Fund, from Knox. We have, uh, very important, an end user, a shipper, who is really committed to pay for the uh, green transportation. In our case, there was Elkem, a big Norwegian um, industrial, um, active in the production for silicon materials. And then we find a niche operator in, in, in NCL, very, very, experience in the sector, and then you can actually do these things together. And uh, I think we're now looking at a situation where we are procuring the fuel, which is gonna be green methanol. Green methanol, in our view, being the 
only real, truly carbon neutral uh, fuel available uh, as of now and probably also for the next couple of years. And uh, for basically on that basis, um, it, we will start to develop that corridor. We will, and then you see the advantage of being in a very predictable trade with very limited infrastructure investment is obviously that you only one, need one or two bunker ports and that actually accelerates um, uh, this development. But it also changes from our perspective the uh, traditional ownership pattern. These ships essentially are turned into floating infrastructure investments. Um, they have very, very long contracts. They will never compete in the market, but they will definitely set benchmarks which are relevant for the industry. That's interesting. Thank you very much for sharing that. Uh, Jan Lars, maybe you have some additional points to make, please? Yeah, um, one thing, I mean, I, I understand the idea behind the green corridors and um, why this could also be something which is probably but easier to implement than overall worldwide on shipping. Um, one question I'm, I have is what's going to happen with a, with a certain segments? Let's take container ships, for example, where you have uh, large liner companies which have also built up a huge owned shipping book, shipping assets over the past years, obviously, um, especially in the large container ships. So will this be a divided market then? Will they deploy their own ships, which they have invested their own money in? into these green corridors. So what's going to happen to the traditional German tramp owner basically providing tonnage? So will this be a two-tier market at the end of the day, which will potentially also be differently priced and different requirements to, certain, to, to a certain extent? So um, there's a couple of question marks which I still have on green corridors. I'm understanding the, the idea behind it and the reasoning for it. Um, Germany alone, I think, certainly is not enough leverage in order to think about um, green corridors. So if you have to do this on a larger scale, so either EU-wide, with all the problems we know in the EU to find a decision together, so it's, uh, it's always a bit tricky. So that way, ideally, obviously, uh, rules um, and regulations which apply internationally, worldwide, especially in an industry like shipping, hardly any other industry which is so international in shipping. So um, this would be ideal, but is it likely uh, that we get all of them in one boat and all of them agree to one set of rules? Difficult to see today. Let's see. Um, so, yeah, there's a couple of question marks on, on, the, on the green corridors I still have. So I, today, I would say it's probably better like what Christian described and also what we have been doing in the past years to have a bilateral discussion and approach with the end users of the ship and to see, to go that way and say, listen, this is what we can provide. What is your issues? What is your, your, your challenges going forward as our client? So what do you face? What can we do on the technical side? What can we do on the operational side? And find these ways, like MVC um, um, has done with methanol, like what we've done with uh, ethane vessels, for example. It's just specific trades, but it's bilateral discussion and collaboration then at the end of the day with the end user. Yeah. The, there might be several ways to sort of establish the green corridor, so it's not sort of give, given a one-way approach. Um, sometimes we get a little bit... Um, say frustrated with politicians that launch grand concepts and great ideas and Martin maybe you, you have more experience talking to politicians than most uh, it is really up to the industry to fill sort of the concept of green corridors with content and I think that's where 
sort of the, the viewpoints from Christian and, and uh, Jan Lars here is, is very important. So how can we as uh, sort of the pragmatists and, and practitioners help to establish that? And uh, how can we sort of influence, again, the politicians to get the proper incentives and, and public and private partnerships and, and so forth? Any views? That's a pretty big question. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but it describes my job in a way. It's like managing frustration <laughs> when you deal with politicians. But I actually would like to turn the question around and ask, you know, what can the political level actually do for the ship owning or ship management company to support the establishment of a strategic partnership that we call green corridors? Because that is, in the end, that is the key. What is a green corridor? It is a, a collaboration between partners that... Uh, have traditionally worked together, but maybe not in the part of decarbonizing the asset, the ship, um, but also, you know, to get new people on board, which, uh, I mean, uh, the relationship between an owner and a fuel supplier might not be the strongest if you're not a liner company. So, um, but nowadays we have regulation in force or coming into force, which require that you establish uh, a certain point of contact with the fuel supplier, even though you're, you're the owner. So this uh, strategic partnership, built, uh, having, having it built uh, internationally on a larger scale, I think is very important. But um, if we look at the systems that are coming into place now to actually price carbon, um, one of the big questions, of course, that comes to my mind is, what is happening with all that money that we give out? I mean, even though we're earning quite, you know, markets are quite strong in the moment, or at least used to be over the last two years, uh, what is actually happening with, happening with all the revenues that we give uh, towards the European emission trading system, for example, or you can ask the same question with an international system. And in a perfect world, at least that what my association would like to see, is that money returning to the sector for you know, development, research, uh, or for building up this strategic partnership, uh, because where is the sense in you know, pricing an industry, uh, you know, uh, trying to drag the money out of the industry and then not giving it back to actually help the industry to, to decarbonize? So that is, I think, a major point, that uh, there's no problem in you know, introducing a carbon price in shipping. That is just another market that is developing and that will function at some point. But uh, giving back that money and not you know, using it for planting trees or whatever um, is, I think, a very important point. Mm. One of the many important points uh, when it comes to green corridors or you know, regulating shipping, uh, shipping's decarbonization. But I mean, in the end, uh, it will be up to the industry to, de to decarbonize, of course. But that is a technical question, I think, that is manageable. Mm. You know, the efficiency of your vessel is a technical, to increase the efficiency of your vessel is something that you will manage. Um, and it's doable, it's, it's not a magic trick. Uh, the, the magic trick is where to get the, the last part of decarbonization, where to get the fuels from. E-fuels, is it e-fuels or is it something else? Is it synthetic gas that we are you know, running, sailing our ships mm. on? Um, and for me, that is the big question mark. Yeah, uh, and you already made a point about that, of where are the, the bunkering um, representatives uh, in this audience? Um, if I could sort of, uh, I mentioned this morning that the biggest hurdle to overcome for shipping to decarbonize was uh, around the fuel availability. So, I mean, at DNV, DNV we are pretty optimistic that the shipboard technologies will be available, but there is a, a grand challenge around uh, fuel availability. and. Um, and to engage with a wider stakeholder group is naturally important, and, and you brought up the, the bunkering industry. Um, 
who else would we need to sort of bring along and, um, and what needs to be done to accelerate uh, the uptake? And uh, maybe we just, Martin, if you start, start us off on that one, please. Yeah, what needs to be done? Okay, um, uh, having manageable regulation, reliable and predictable regulation in place would be a good start, I think. Uh, if you look at the CII, um, which is kind of a weird regulation because it regulates the operation of the ship, uh, and puts all responsibility on the owner, whereby in most cases, at least in you know, container trade, the responsibility for the operation will be in the hands of the charterer. So there is something where I at least have a question mark, is this a good regulation or not? Um, and if I then ask myself, what actually is the good regulation? It is something that is, um, goes hand in hand with the necessities of the industry. And, um, understanding shipping and, and the, the mechanisms that we have in shipping, the different parties that have certain responsibilities in shipping. You mentioned the time charter parties. I think that, that is a super important issue. Um, and it is one of the major topics under the European Emission Trading System, for example. You know, who is responsible in the end to carry the cost for the European Emission Trading System? Is it the owner or is it the operator? Probably the operator, because that's the one that is actually emitting or, or has its hands on, on regulating the emissions. Mm. Christian, any viewpoints? I, I think it really what, what you just said, I think we also have to change in our organizations. And um, if you just did the concept of us being tonnage providers and just a building ship or buying a ship and then hope that somebody eventually uh, comes up and, and charters it, I think that's a thing of the past, really. Um, we are really looking at a situation now that once, if we go to, to charterers and, and we want to meet them, basically have same, still the commercial teams in the room and still meet the, the executives, but also now there are a lot of new people in the room, which I've never met before. There's a few procurement, uh, few procurement experts in the room, there are decarbonization people in the room, there are high-level sustainability experts in the room. So there's also a lot of things which, which is changing in that industry, and, and, and that means for us as well as an, as an organization, that we have to change uh, the approach and, and the concept. Um, we have to offer solutions to them um, for their much more complex environments. And that means also answers to questions like fuel procurement, etc. And in our, in our world, um, we, that meant a change process. Um, we, we set up a team in, across our organization, a marine uh, decarbonization solutions team, which is at the moment consisting of experts, of energy experts, of uh, fuel experts, of um, business analysts of engineers, and they are really guiding us, and they're basically uh, at, every, uh, at every discussion involved from day one these days, because it's super important, and they talk to our um, renewable colleagues um, in, in, the, in the first place, then they talk to our colleagues of Ferrostal um, about upstream plant development, things like that. Um, we talk about fuels, of course. Um, we invest in fuels these days, something we've never done before. We are one of the backers of Ineratech, which is a German uh, fuel startup, really producing clean and, and synthetic uh, fuels already uh, as of today. And I think that's, uh, that's really much more complex, but I think we have to change to, to meet these demands. And then if we're doing this and if we are really uh, successful in doing this, then uh, it's a real great business opportunity. Great. How about you, Ant? Do you see this as a, a great business opportunity moving forward? For sure, it's a great business opportunity, but we also have to keep in mind the, the existing charter contracts which we have, which might last for, for many years and which might have been agreed upon at a time when uh, CII or ETS was still uh, far away. And uh, I think 
I think there the, the, the issue of partnership between the owner and the charter is, is getting even more important now. How to handle all these, uh, these new regulations in an existing contractual environment. Uh, so that uh, for sure you, we have the experts in place, but uh, you have an existing agreement. How do we manage that under an existing agreement mm -hmm. in this uncertainty? And I think that is, that is a challenge ahead of us where, at least to my knowledge so far, nobody has, has the, the, the perfect solution. True, very true. The question is if, if there is a perfect solution, yeah. there never is for, for sure, yeah. but um, I agree. And then also, I mean, on the documentation questions uh, in a lot of respects, like for time charters, agreements, uh, what happens when we have CO2 pricings, who's paying for that, um, uh, how is this shared between uh, charters and owners and so on and so forth. All these questions are arising there. I think one thing which we all can agree on, and we should probably all agree on, is um, the world is getting more complicated, um, also in the small, small shipping world um, over the past years. Um, it's getting more interesting, probably. You have to have other areas of expertise. You have to learn more things more quickly, um, also from other, other um, parts of the energy production and so on and so forth. Um, I think the only way out of it is to work together and to get uh, to, to, to try to get all the different stakeholders um, pulling it into one direction. So one of the top, most topics we have been discussing and which will be discussed also during the day is collaboration. So and just looking at, at fuels, only the small part of fuels in shipping, what is going to be the next fuel in shipping? I don't know. Nobody knows today. So, of course, LNG today is most likely for the foreseeable future. It's available. You have an infrastructure. Uh, will it be methanol for, for uh, obvious reasons? Uh, Handling-wise is a bit easier. So, um, certainly from, from a gas carrier's perspective, where we are um, um, working a lot in, in, in that field, Ammonia is for sure one of the of the fuels, but will this be on a large scale? I, I don't see this for the next 10 years. So there's a lot of different pockets which you have to dip your toes in, uh, which you have to, to look at. So, uh, but above all, it doesn't matter which the right fuel is at the end of the day, all the green fuels which we want and which we are all targeting towards, we will have huge competition, not only in shipping, in the shipping industry, but with all other industries out there, let it be steel, let it be petrochemicals, etc., they all need to diversify or need to go to greener energy and greener fuels. And there will be a huge fight. So will we be the right ones in shipping? Will this be the industry which has enough money at the end of the day to buy these green fuels? I have my doubts. So the only way to circumvent that is start early in developing these green fuels, the ideas, the technologies on that together and get your fair share out of the cake, of the, out of the green fuels. Otherwise, this is another issue we are uh, getting to ourselves. We cannot get to green fuels because petrochemicals, automotive industry, steel industry bought all of it. That's a very good point. Um, you know, sometimes I have the reflection that when you talk about, uh, you know, what is the, the, the better fuel for the future, it's like discussing which uh, football club do you, do you belong to. It's very passionate and people are, you know, very, very passionate about, you know, their preferences. Um, but what we know, and, and all of you sort of pointed to this, is that, uh, 
you know, regardless of whichever fuel might be suitable for the trade that you're in and the geographies that you are, are um, calling, um, it's going to be more expensive, right? And it will take um, investments on board, naturally, but it will also be in itself a lot more expensive. And uh, I think the previous panel also touched upon whether it was possible to sort of make that cost go forward to, to those that are chartering and the cargo owners, etc. And I think that's a, a big question. Will you be able to put that cost forward uh, and sort of have some returns on the greening features of the vessels, including the fuel? I think that's a, that's a key Easier, and um, I'm not sure who wants to be first, but maybe yeah, Jan Lars, you can have a go. <laughs> I've started to get a red already. So, um, honestly, I, I don't know if we will be able to. I mean, this is tough discussions already in the last years, and um, I can say in the in the in the gas carrier business, at least um, over the past years, this has been developing in the right direction. So people were listening more and saying, okay, yeah, we understand. We, we, we want to have uh, all nice features on the ship. So at the end of the day, um, it, it's always coming down. So if you want all newest technology on the ship as a charter, so if you want to have a Rolls-Royce basically on water with all the nice features, you cannot expect only to pay for a Mini Cooper. This is not going to work. Why should I do the investment then? Why should anyone do the investment from the equity or the debt side? doesn't matter. So if you want to have further development, uh, if you want to transition in, into a greener future also in shipping, reducing consumptions, reducing emissions, etc., the bill has to be paid. Um, we have to do this, and there's a certain necessity and minimum requirement as a, as, a, as a human being. We all need to be willing to accept higher prices, also in our daily lives, on, on our products. So if we really want to shift into a greener future, into a better future, hopefully for our kids, um, then we have to pay the price for that. Someone's got to pay for it. And also the charters will have to pay a certain amount on more expensive transportation, at least for a, for a transition period until hopefully green fuels, green energy technologies are cheaper than the old stuff, which we all used to um, uh, 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 consume in, in, in the past decades. But there's no other way around it. So for me personally, I, as I say also for the organization, if I'm not getting paid for it, why would I do the investment? So same goes for a decision to order a ship today with only conventional fuels. It's a no-go for me. I have no understanding on that. At least I have an optionality on fuels. I don't know what the right fuel is, but I cannot understand anyone now going out there and ordering ships on old technologies from the past decade. Why would you do that? I wouldn't. I, I can't. Very good. Christian, can you get paid for green features on your vessels? I, probably. There's a number of uh, issues around that. Obviously, it depends a bit on the ship, right? If the ship is very niche and specifically designed for a certain trade, which is the case for, for the Norwegian ships I mentioned earlier, then that's certainly easier, right? That then Otherwise, they wouldn't get the ship on the water. So I think that's definitely... Um, it definitely an easier discussion. But again, it, it's coming back to what do we actually offer, right? Do we offer only a ship and, and please charter this ship or do we offer a complete solution which, invo which involves a lot more? And let's not forget in container shipping, the landscape has completely changed. Uh, none of the liner companies needs us as tonnage providers these days. 
uh, for financing, none of us uh, is actually competitive on their cost of capital. So we really have to uh, step up and, and, and offer more, and that includes, unfortunately, to, to answer that, uh, accepting higher residual value risks. Um, there's no way around it. So we have to do that. And to be able to do that again, um, we need to uh, be better educated and we need to have different teams on the ground which actually help us to um, get our arms around a certain technology, a certain fuel, um, a certain availability of fuels also in five or seven years down the line. I think there is uh, really no, no alternative to that. But um, I can tell you on the other side, the other important factor, I guess, is that the willingness of the end users, of the shippers, of the cargo owners, um, is slowly uh, but steady increasing. And, and I think that gives also more comfort to the charterers then uh, if, if they are willing to pay for it. And uh, we just had a discussion two days ago with a big uh, car battery producer um, in, in Scandinavia. And for them, it's, it's, it's basically a no-go to use conventional ships. If, to the extent they are available, they will pay whatever it takes. Um, and I think um, that's changing slowly, and uh, that's really important, and then we are also paid for that. There's no doubt about it. Many of the, um, of the charters and cargo owners are also measured on, on their emissions, and, and shipping is a, a big part of their scope three emissions, right? So that's the indirect uh, emissions. Uh, aren't, um, do you see, when you have your conversations with the charters and, and the cargo owners, do, do you feel that they are you know, thinking about this and how you can help them improve? For sure, I think uh, in, in the container industry, the, the container industry is to the extent that uh, the, the liner companies have the contact with the end users, that is far more ahead than, for example, in, in bulk, where you have the feeling at least that uh, so far there, there are not that many methanol dual fuel projects discussed as, as in the container segment. But um, yes, it's, it's key for, for the container industry, and Christian, I agree, the, the liner companies don't need us, at least not in the in the bigger segments, but in the the smaller ship segments up maybe to 10,000 TU, there are not that many new building owners uh, orders ahead. So this is where they will still have to rely on on us as traditional tramp owners, and uh, for sure uh, they will they will pay a price uh, for additional features because they can pass it on to their end users. So <clears throat> as long as supply demand is not Completely um, going with answer. This uh, this will work. I'm pretty comfortable Very good. there. Thank you. Um, I, I would like now to to switch over to what was already mentioned. Um, it was around uh, complexity, the, the shipping industry becoming more complex. Um, also about uh, with the multi-fuel future and the many say, energy efficiency measures on board, that the, it's going to be more complicated, not only for the seafarers, but also for the onshore personnel. And, um, and uh, you mentioned also that we need to attract talent to this industry. Um, so the question is, how can we, say, build the competence that is needed, both for the seafarers and the onshore personnel, but also how can we you know, make shipping attractive for the younger generation. Maybe, Aunt, you would like to start on that one. Please. Maybe I start with the, I can start with the onshore personnel. I think um, we we currently have an issue as an industry uh, because so far we are not the most advanced uh, future-proof industry, and uh, I can see that also from my uh, former employer that it's far easier to attract 
young talents if you can advertise zero carbon initiatives or whatever rather than just traditional chip management. So for, for young talents, uh, purpose is even more important than, than the payslip at the end. And uh, I think this is why we, we have to make it uh, very obvious and, and transparent that this industry is transforming and we are part of it and young talents can, can be part of it. I think that is still not clear to the, to the at least to the younger generation. Very good. Martin, any viewpoints from your side? Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's one of the biggest challenges we have, you know, how to attract, uh, I don't know, a 16-year-old uh, person that is looking for a job and, and convince that person that shipping is interesting and um, uh, that, that a top job. Uh, and, you know, not dividing between land and seaside, I think both are equally important. Uh, it would already be a major success if we convince uh, that person to at least, you know, join the shipping industry in one way or the other. Uh, but, but that is a super challenge because uh, nowadays you need to, you know, you have other ways, you need to use other ways and means how to actually reach out to the younger generation. And I still think we have a lot of advantages, you know, we are very international, we're dealing with uh, top-notch uh, high-tech ships, uh, we are on the verge to decarbonize. Um, we are actually a green industry by nowadays, I would say, not every single part of it, but uh, it is definitely a journey we are on. And um, I think that at some stage will hopefully be recognized by the next generation. Uh, but it is, of course, a challenge that we all need to engage and, you know, advertise our industry on. But it doesn't help, I must say, uh, that we are just coming out of a 12-year crisis where, you know, the, when you read the newspapers, it was no good news about shipping. That changed over the last two years, but the last two years was COVID. And all you read about shipping was that, uh, you know, seafarers were trapped in a, on a vessel for a year uh, uh, somewhere in Asian waters. And, and that, of course doesn't underline the attractiveness of your industry. But nevertheless, I mean, conferences like these, uh, where not a single young person is present, unfortunately, <laughs> might help, you know, to uh, display that shipping is actually attractive, but it needs a little more. Thank you. Uh, can I maybe I'll pick up the, the, the COVID point, for example. I, I agree. I mean, this, we had significantly more coverage also from, from the general media, um, what's happening with seafarers, etc not always good to see and how they sometimes um, were left behind in certain jurisdictions, etc. On the other side, I mean, it's always two sides of the coin. Um, one of the issues in the shipping industry in general, I think, is that we have not enough sense in the younger generation so that this is also a profession you can go for. So to make this more interesting, and I slightly disagree with the modernization point, I think uh, the shipping industry is offering so much more, especially from other fields like digitalization, also fuels and all these things which are coming in, than just transportation from A to B. So what we try to do, or what we have been trying to do over the past decades basically, is going even more into the schools, into universities, etc. Um, so there, I think COVID, for example, is maybe also a bit of a blessing because the overall public has become significantly more aware of importance of shipping. Yeah. So mm -hmm. with all the disruptions in trade lanes and what's happening if this is not working anymore. So the importance of shipping as an industry probably in the, in the overall public is much better perceived now. So why don't we try at least to use this also with, the, with attracting people into the industry saying, listen, you know, all oh, this is for your day-to-day -day life. This is so important that you get the products into your shops, you have your groceries there, that you don't have disruptions here or there. So we've seen this in the past two years, three years. So 
help us build this for the future. And there's much more which you can do. So the other issues is, of course, you have today, especially younger people, um, the next generation starting in, in their careers now, they have different aspects and focus. So they, they all learned also in COVID, unfortunately, that 90% uh, of the people can work from home. That's fairly difficult on a ship. So as a captain or as a first engineer to sail your ship from home, I don't see that in my lifetime, to be honest. So onshore, different question, no, no question, but this doesn't help in developed countries to attract more people into shipping again. So um, you have to have more probably on the engineering side, but then again, you also have different new fields of, of um, jobs or new areas of jobs where today when I look in our new buildings today or which we've delivered in the past five years, there's basically there's more cable on board on a gas carrier than piping for gas. There's, there's more, more network cables there, so I'd rather have an administrator sailing on the ship than a third engineer these days. So, That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, you have different, different points of, yeah. of people trying to train for, yeah. which we have to adapt to, and where we have to attract the talent, obviously. Sure. Um, Christian, I'm going to ask you this last uh, question. Um, we know that uh, the so-called next generation is very preoccupied with you know, the bigger issues in life, and decarbonization is certainly one of them. And I talk a lot about what I call the maritime renaissance, because we have to really think anew in many ways, energy efficiency, new solutions. Uh, wouldn't this be you know, a, a good way to attract young people that we really you know, we are innovative, we want to have new and better solutions, we invite for good ideas and... Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I think what I was alluding to earlier, right? I'm talking about collaboration and not looking at a specific silo in our organizations. These are the business development guys who, you know, think about ship designs and then just go out and, and, and try to find employment for the ship. If we look at it from a, from a more broad perspective, then that's definitely the case. And I was actually very impressed. We have, um, we have one of our uh, team members in the, in the team I mentioned earlier um, working in, in Copenhagen two weeks uh, every month. Um, he's a second D to the Merce McKinney Merler Center for Zero Carbon Shipping. And if you look around in that organization, you will only find young people and you will only find young talent, great education behind them and definitely not shipping. And they understand our sector, and, and they really um, are looking for the, for the impact in their job. And, and that's really um, what, what will the, the, they will increase the pressure, and that's a lot of young talent coming from, from these places. And that's only, only in, in, in Copenhagen, but that's the same in the, um, the decarbonization center in Singapore. Uh, we've been last month, so that's all over, and, and that's really uh, very, very promising to see. That these will not sail at sea. That's a problem. <laughs> no, but they work on an. I agree. They, I'm they, sure, I agree. They work on autonomous. They work on autonomous ships, which you already. Yeah, have. Not in my lifetime. Not in my lifetime. Sorry. We will not start a discussion on autonomous ships. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for sharing your insights and your thoughts and reflections. Um, I'm sure it's uh, it's food for thought, but now I guess it's also some real food available, Nicholas. So I will hand it back to you. So thank you, everyone, for your patience and interest. <laughs> Yes, that's all.